The Great Moving Left show wants to reconstruct the British left's public sphere. Critical, constructive and engaged, it seeks to offer a collective forum of debate on the critical questions facing the left today. It would see the left's capacity to mobilise transformed into an ability to organise, turning a left that can polemicise into one which can build a project to win. Without spaces for concentrated reflection and political education, any new left is unlikely to succeed. This is The Great Moving Left Show. show. Uh, thank you very much to the 200 listeners who tuned into our first show. Hey. Hope we double that next time. Uh, we're joined by Jonas, one of the hosts. Hey, yeah. How you doing? And Kathy, another host. Stop calling me a host. <laughs> They're trying to make me a host. I'm firmly a producer. She is striking on the host front. <laughs> so yeah, we, we do encourage all our members uh, and supporters and listeners uh, to go down to the UCU picket line as well, um, which are throughout this week and all of next week. Uh, but without further ado, we have Duncan Thomas, who is with us today, a writer based in London and a coordinator for Haymarket Books in Europe, and a key thinker on the British <laughs> left on the British Tory <laughs> party. And then we are, uh, and we're in even more trouble than. <laughs> but uh, thanks very much for inviting me along. No worries. So without further ado, uh, we. We're going to talk about Johnsonism, we're going to talk about the Tory party as the party of British capital, and whether it really is the party of British capital anymore. But I think we'll start with, I think, the key question which is on everyone's lips, which is, if the Tory party are in a deep crisis, as your Verso blog article argues, why are they still winning elections? Uh, good question. Um, I mean, it wasn't just me who said that they were in long-term uh, <laughs> decline, uh, although I have my own particular reasons for thinking that that uh, was and in some sense still is the case. I mean, this has been said by people from right across the political spectrum, uh, from, you know, spectator and conservative home to other people on the left. Uh, and it does seem that, uh, you know, at least since uh, Thatcher was forced to resign in 1990, the Conservative Party has been in more or less uh, some form of continual, continual and often self-inflicted and often quite funny crisis. Um, and yet they've been in power for 27 of the last 40 years. They won four consecutive elections or emerged as the governing uh, party um, in four consecutive elections and in each one of those elect election victories they've increased uh, their vote share and there are a number of votes and that's uh, as far as I'm aware unprecedented for any govern governing party in, in Britain. Um, so Tony Blair for example across his three elect electoral victories he lost about four million votes and since uh, well between 2010 when Cameron comes to power 
and 2019 the Conservative Party adds uh, about three and a half million votes. So on paper that looks like a pretty stable and uninterrupted period of rule. Um, why do they keep winning elections? Uh, lots of reasons for that, some of which uh, are due to the inbuilt permanent advantages that they have within our political system. So particularly in this election, you saw um, really how different sections of the state and the ruling class and its various, uh, what we could call ideological you know, apparatuses, uh, not through necessar necessarily any coordinated plan or like common uh, agenda or whatever, nonetheless all acted in a kind of molecular way in a manner which, uh, which returned Johnson to power with a huge majority, the likes of which uh, the Conservative Party hasn't seen for 30 or 40 years. Um, I think that, you know, you, there, the Brexit conjuncture uh, offers clearly unique opportunities for them, but if you look at the electoral coalition that they've put together, they still lose every uh, age group under 35 uh, very heavily. Uh, or maybe even even older than that, um, concentrated in uh, clearly declining sectors of the country. So in that sense, it doesn't that doesn't look like an electoral coalition that is stable or that is going to reproduce itself over the long term. Um, so remains to be seen whether the their long term decline is reversed or whether they've bought themselves time. They've bought themselves five years to actually figure out how to be a party in the 21st century and relate to British society. Mm. Yeah. Um, in one of the pieces you wrote for us, I think there's been a couple in that, um, you talk about, um, you talk about um, Johnson and how Johnson has little besides um, psychological compensation to offer his base. Now, in the terms of Brexit and the sort of capture of the Conservative Party by its hardest and sharpest and most racist element, um, you can see the way in which the idea of race and nation play a role in that. Um, and of course, the ongoing foray into culture wars, the sort of vilification of trans people, um, really shooting up on the deportations, um, basically the potential wholesale transformation of Britain's uh, migration system turning thousands upon thousands of people in this country and coming into this country into deeper and much more dangerous terms of illegality. Um, how do you think that plays out? You're obviously, you're drawing on W.E. Du Bois, you're drawing on the idea of the wages of whiteness. Um, yeah. You obviously think there's a short-termism to that. Um, just elucidate that a bit more for us. So, um, it's a big question and where I kind of fall on it depends on uh, my mental health on a particular day <laughs> you know sometimes I think well they don't really have very much at all uh, mm -hmm. and you can clearly see that you know it's it's a government like completely riddled by contradictions mm -hmm. um, and then uh, if I'm you know feeling a little more somber about things well uh, psychological compensation can actually do quite a lot and the record of other uh, right-wing authoritarian regimes around the world would suggest that you don't actually necessarily need to like deliver that much materially at the moment to uh, retain um, to retain support but I mean I until until very recently this was a, a fringe of the Conservative Party um, 
Brexit as an issue for the British public was marginal in terms of people's, you know, what people ranked as being important mm. to them. And the, the process by which the Conservative Party has got to this point has been through a series of, like, short-term and slapdash improvised ideological positions without really anything, uh, as far as I can see, comparable to kind of the uh, long-term intellectual resource building that preceded Thatcherism, for example. Um, and then you can also look at how Thatcher had all of the resources built up over many decades by the, the social democratic state uh, to sell off in, in order to fund uh, tax cuts for different mm. sections of society. Mm. She had, um, she had uh, you know, a huge stock of council houses mm. to open up for private purchase to create an entirely new social layer. Um, a lot of the people who benefited from that when they were younger then uh, are you know, now uh, voting conservative still. Yeah. So um, in terms of offering that kind of thing to people on that kind of scale, and I don't see much. Well. And the Falklands, yeah, I mean, shouldn't overplay the contrast, like until the Falklands, it wasn't looking too rosy for her either. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe we've got something like that to look forward to. <laughs> but, um, um, uh, but yeah, it's not, it's not really clear where those things are going to come from and what they're going to be able to offer people to cement this in the longer term. Although it, it, like it might not take that much, mm. uh, which is kind of my fear. I mean, if, you know, if um, a bunch of subsidies are thrown at Nissan or somebody to keep open a car factory or whatever, then maybe, you know, maybe that's enough. Uh, some of the stuff that they're doing around housing uh, you know, getting rid of uh, no-fault evictions or um, this idea of kind of having a single lifetime deposit or whatever that you pay and transfer here, there and everywhere. Like, clearly these things are not going to solve the housing crisis, but they would make some difference to, to people's lives. Uh, as far as I understand it, rather than it being something that you do every time that you move house, you would do it once and uh, rather than kind of getting it back and paying it out again, it would follow you around in right. leases. Um, but I do still see it, find it hard to see how they're actually going to uh, shore these things up and appeal to younger people which you know this is a big difference from the 1980s when most young people voted for Thatcher yeah. um, so I, in that sense it's still um, still unstable I think but wages of whiteness and psychological comp compensation shouldn't be underestimated either I don't think um, and we'll see the more that things start to unravel in other areas the more that they're going to lean on that kind of stuff yeah i mean this ties in quite well with the whole idea of johnsonism um i mean he's obviously made a huge deal of the idea that those traditional labor voters who lent um the tories their votes should be rewarded or paid back um in the election manifesto there were greater nods to um, infrastructural investment um, to public spending here and there um, and it seems that like what I'm interested in is how well do you think Johnson will be able to straddle that path I mean because on the one hand you do see the sort of the state really going hard for the sort of racist revanchism um, but on the other hand you see Johnson making 
those nods towards the sort of anti-elitism still now that he's the the big state manager you know the yeah. fobbing off of Davos as a conference of the elite the um, kicking Sajid Javid out of the cabinet because he's a Randian a classic neoliberal um, yeah yeah exactly the fuck business mm-hmm. stuff um, how, how is this how is this sort of tack balance? Is this a coherent Johnsonist project? I, I get the impression you think not. Um, yeah, go on. What do you think of that? Well, it's not coherent at the moment. I mean, I think that sometimes we overestimate the coherence of political projects in general. Mm. So it's very easy now to like look back at, at, at the Thatcher government and, and think, okay, you know, they yeah. had, uh, <laughs> they had all of these think tanks that I kind of referenced before. Uh, this was a long process. They knew exactly what they were going to do and they came in and did it. And in, in some areas, uh, that's true. Like, you know, um, their plan for taking on the working class, for example, was clearly kind of pretty well thought out. And they were incapable of doing it for the first five years. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and, it, and, you know, it could have gone very wrong. Yeah. Um, so, so all of the tendencies that you referenced are clearly present. Um, and we'll see in practice whether that congeals into something coherent. Um, I mean, what I would say is that there's a lot, you know, there's a, clearly a lot of talk about leveling up uh, in his expression, different parts of the country, and you know, rewarding these voters. Um, talk about abandoning various fiscal targets. Um, that were just set in the manifesto. Um, lots of pieces in the Financial Times being very supportive of the idea of a kind of loosening of these rules and a, an expansion of state spending. Um, but I'm quite skeptical because there is... Hap- okay, I just said everything is to one degree or another uh, improvised, but there is no organized current within the Conservative Party that that wants that to happen right in the sense that like there's no organized current within the conservative party that has spent any time developing these positions into actual implementable policy um and so yeah javid gets moved out but he's replaced by somebody whose record is also as a kind of you know free marketeer the government the cabinet is still stuffed full of uh, people very far to the right economically connected to various lobbying groups and tobacco firms and all this kind of thing so beyond the kind of uh, propaganda lines where are they going to draw the kind of intellectual uh, and technical expertise to get this kind of stuff done and then you just look at the scale of what is needed so um, by several measures the UK is the most unequal um uh, country in the OECD yeah. um, geographically um, a piece in the Financial Times estimated it would cost a trillion pounds to really address that that's far 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 beyond anything that they're talking about they have a hundred billion pound fund I think mm. um, and then you also kind of think about how it would work a little more and uh, you know there's the productivity gap means that for every pound that you spend in London, for example, or another bigger city, 
you get more back uh, than spending it in uh, you know a smaller town or a rural area because yeah. the, the the infrastructure is there, business is there, productivity productivity is higher, and so on. Um, and so, if you talk about you know leveling up the north, right, <laughs> as this kind of like blob uh, of the country uh, that they want to shore up their support in, well, the places that you would do that to target spending for the maximum gain are not places that voted conservative. They're the cities, right? It's yeah. like Liverpool, Manchester, Leeds, etc., etc., right? Not ex-industrial small mining towns with yeah. aging populations and not really a whole lot else going for them. And to revive those places economically, you know, I don't see, I don't see them having any real plan. It would, it would be a huge rebalancing. So. Um, I'm quite skeptical. I suspect that the budget uh, on the 11th will make a few gestures that Johnson will continue talking about uh, kind of pie in the sky, uh, public grandeur projects like HS2 and bridges to Northern Ireland and all this kind of thing. Um, And I suspect that they will try to do this kind of stuff or at least um, propagandize their plans fairly quickly like this year because all governments are never more powerful when, than when they first come into office and I think that's especially true of this one uh, they really only have this year before you know economically things start to uh, unravel or at least become more complicated um, so um, I think that's behind a lot of the moves around the civil service and so on as well. But mm-hmm. we're going to see a, a series of like uh, kind of lightning strikes in different directions. But whether that's actually enough to um, shore up support in these places and build a long-term electoral coalition, not sure. On the other hand, uh, you know, if if those people who lent their votes to the Conservative Party, uh, which is the phrase that's always used just don't vote next time right don't go back to labor or whatever then that might not matter right if you just if the effect of not delivering is just a, a depression of vote overall in places where age profile is moving towards the tories uh, in, in the tories favor and so on then maybe not that much needs to be done i think the figure of dominic cummings i think plays quite a big role now in the intellectual part of the Johnsonism of Johnsonism or the Johnson project or whatever what you want to call it um, there's also Britannia Unchained as well I mean there are yeah. intellectual mm. would say heavyweights but maybe for the the Tory party that they are there are people thinking about these questions how do you how do you figure well I mean Britannia Unchained kind of Singapore on the Thames kind of stuff like is not compatible with um, with a really transformative state-led program uh, other than in the sense of maybe some spending on infrastructure that is designed solely in the benefit of capital and does maintain employment maybe but you know uh, um, not particularly desirable jobs um, so free ports for example could be could be part of that um, Dominic Cummings is a figure uh, <laughs> well I mean, it's telling that they've had to reach outside of the Conservative Party for any kind of like intellectual mm. renewal. Um, but it's 
you know, I, I'm still, I'm not really sure whether um, in, you know, in five years time he's going to be hailed as a genius who transformed the country or whether he's going to be like on the Alex Jones show talking about how, you know, um, newts are trying to edit our genome sequences. <laughs> so <laughs> it could go either way. And I kind of, <laughs> he's obviously an interesting figure and takes quite a belligerent attitude to uh, their attempts to kind of shake up the state and uh, and whatever, but beyond um, beyond wanting to attract weirdos and misfits and uh, invest in a kind of Israeli style um, high tech industry, I'm not really sure what he you know what what his aim is you know or what or what his what his big program is. Um, so yeah, we'll see. I also think just to add on, on Dominic Cummings, I mean, he's kind of this figure of fascination for a lot of the media. And part of me wonders whether some of that isn't a kind of externalization impulse, um, by largely liberal centrist commentators who are looking for something to explain mm. the apparently miraculous turnaround of the conservative party mm. and are looking for something uh that they can just that they can pin their kind of anxieties and fears on and he is that thing um and i think there's a kind of danger of buying into the myth a little bit he has however changed the toy party very much so compared to five years ago say it'd be unthinkable that Ken Clark would no longer be in the Tory party Winston Churchill's grandson in one fell swoop is Nicholas Stone Winston Churchill's grandson yeah it wasn't mentioned often when he was uh, referred to in the <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but the Tory party is totally transformed the the new MPs I think will change totally the political and also social composition of the party and he's restored order where there was chaos to coin a phrase of Margaret Thatcher is there not a, a totally different transformed toy party facing facing the Labour Party now is, is that true <laughs> I, I, the, there is a new coterie of MPs uh, they're much more sharper and obedient and willing to get into line uh, with Johnson's and Cummins directors. That's a really revolutionary change from the Tory party generally in that there is a loyalty to the leader which is really direct. There's huge numbers of MPs who have a loyalty really to Johnson rather than the Tory party as, as such which provides the leader of the Tories with an immense amount of cultural capital and social capital. Isn't that though because Johnson personifies Toryism and like I mean Johnson's gambit right is uh, a short term like an opportunist short term is short termism predicated on getting the Tories through the the period of political rupture that Brexit has been and so in the maelstrom that they've had to experience over the last five years Johnson represents quite a beacon of hope rather than a particular ideological line that they're all willing to get behind 
Um, but also added to that in terms of the crisis of the Tory party, I mean, it's still a zombie party, right? I mean, I mean, you reference this a bit in your article. Um, someone like Phil Burton uh, Cartledge talks about this a bit. Um, the Tories used to have like a social infrastructure. You know, they used to have their own clubs where um, there was some degree of social class integration between workers and middle class business owners and even upper local elites. Um, that doesn't exist anymore. Their ability to, I still, I, yeah, I still think there is a, I still think we're looking at a zombie party is what I'm saying. Well, Your question, Matt's question still absolutely stands. Yeah, there has been a uh, transformation, a pretty pronounced one in the Conservative Party. Like, Matt is completely correct. And um, I think it's much more um, ideologically narrow mm-hmm. um, than, than it has been in the past. Um, and probably just m- much more ideological full stop <laughs> right, mm. than it has been in the past. Um, the point about it being a zombie party is interesting. Um, so when I looked at the reasons behind what, or what I thought was, uh, was driving the long decline of, of the Conservative Party, um, yeah, one of, the, one of the things I looked at was the... Uh, their shift from really being a mass, mass membership organization, you know, many more members than, than Labour, even if a lot of those people were just kind of drinking cheap pints and being racist in their local conservative club, not particularly active, um, to falling at one point below 100,000 members reportedly, although exact figures don't, don't exist, I don't think. Um, interestingly, it's now, it's now gone up. Uh, quite considerably, largely, um, well, in part to do with entryism from from uh, the Brexit party yeah. and partly returning members, and part of part of that will overlap. So hard to tell. Um, but yeah, they did have uh, this whole network, which kind of meant that um, they could organically arrive at kind of approximations of the common class position for British capital, and that would align the, the the interests and the identifications of conservative sections of the working class which has always existed it's not a new thing um the the kind of 2019 conservative electoral coalition looks quite similar to their historic uh, support um but could align those conservative sections of the working class with local petty bourgeoisie uh, local business owners I mean, towns had a bourgeoisie, which was which yeah. isn't really the case anymore, mm. um, with large capital, and that was a very organic process of socialization. It meant that that um, uh, the British ruling class uh, didn't just have a kind of common class position, but a common experience of socialization, etc., etc., etc. And that's that's gone, and so yeah, they have been re- referred to by um, will. Will Davies maybe uh, call them a, a zombie party in the Gar- Guardian piece, um, but I think one of the one of the outcomes of that kind of process of hollowing out is that it actually makes them a lot more nimble mm. in this uh, in in this political environment. So, um, in my uh, verso piece, I kind of chart this process of decline. Um, 
But in my defense, I don't say it doesn't mean that they won't win yeah, no, this election yeah, or yeah, future yeah. elections. No. It just means that what has been the Conservative Party no longer exists. So you it really is something else. With that one. <laughs> I did. So you got to, you know, play it both yeah, ways. I did know that. But um, I don't remember who used this phrase. It's not um, one that I've just come up with. But um, the Conservative Party kind of increasingly resembles a kind of um, communications company for different <laughs> parts of global capital uh, in terms of their political strategies and their electoral campaign and so on. Um, uh, and so having become unmoored from any uh, really deeply embedded, organic, stable social base in the way that they were, means that I think things are a lot more volatile and less settled, but also gives them a certain um, freedom of maneuver uh, to... to um, pushes them in the in the direction of becoming more overtly ideological and kind of accelerates this process of uh, shifting further and further to the right um, getting more drawn into conducting culture wars of the type, type that you referenced um, both as a consequence of and reaction to this process of hollowing out and social unmooring and that's unpredictable and quite dangerous what are the implications of that for British capital then? The historic party of the, well, the historic yeah. party of British capital, unmoored from its well, traditional base of representation. One question is: Do we think that British capitalism is a thing that exists anymore? Well, it's a thing that exists, um, but yeah, like you argue in your piece, you know, it's particularly. Um, wedded to global financial capital in a way that really stimmies and negates almost a, a singular identification of British capitals. But what implications does that have for the Tory party? What um, I mean, clearly there's a tension there in itself, right? Yeah. Uh, there's a tension between Britain as a global financial hub, um, you know, a communications company, as you said, um, and this historically national party. Uh, very much so. Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, so the Conservative Party... <laughs> Only small questions you know, in this podcast. Um, well, for hundreds of years, they have um, largely pretty adeptly um, identified ascendant sections of capitalism in Britain and aligned themselves with it. And... Um, and through their political program drawn, you know, um, at least since the decline of the Liberal Party, uh, really, the, you know, the whole of the British ruling class behind them. Um, and that process is helped by the kind of social embeddedness that we talked about before. It's helped by just the very, very tight personal interlinkages that you see in Britain uh, between uh, people serving on uh, the boards of banks and financial institutions and industrial companies and whatever that kind of increases in density and interlinkages throughout the 20th century and begins to drop off in the 1980s. Um, so uh, they've, they've, they've always managed to uh, extricate themselves from declining sectors and attach themselves to rising sectors without um, 
causing huge upheaval. What's different now, I think, is that uh, there isn't really a comparable social body to the British elite of previous decades and centuries. Um, doesn't really exist. So um, I think a, min a minority, a small, a small minority, uh, a large minority, but non nonetheless a minority of conservative MPs now went to private school, for example. Um, up until the 1980s, it was still like over 80% of ministers and so on. Um, so that social body that can kind of see itself as a, as a collective political actor doesn't exist. Um, in terms of culture? In yeah. In terms of socialization? Yeah, in terms of socialization. And I think that's, that's important for having a kind of organic connection with a political party. Mm. Um, the role of the city... The city is the socialization, seemingly. I mean, a lot yeah. of the new Tory MPs or... Toy MPs do still have some form of connection with the city. They've grown yeah. up asset stripping companies and whatever. Yeah. The current model of British capitalism. And the, the Johnson's cabinet is exemplary of this tendency. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, I think in 2014, for the first time, there were more, uh, the value of the assets held by foreign capitalists in Britain, registered on the London Stock Exchange for the first time was greater than the, the value of assets held by British capitalists abroad. So yeah, socialization always takes place in one form or another, but like um, the linkages now are to, between the Conservative Party and Capital are with like the most rapacious short-term and internationalized sections of capital mm. that exist. Um, and you know, that must have some kind of implication for welding together a coherent political program that can draw uh, that, that can draw different sections of the ruling class behind it. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how you implement a uh, long-term program that is compatible with the kind of thing that Boris Johnson is talking about in terms of leveling up the country and so on with with sections of capital that the Conservative Party are now uh, so entwined with. Mm. I think the question about unified culture is quite interesting because, yeah, I would think that we'd have to question somewhat the decomposition of the Tory social, social base, especially its relationship to, say, Oxbridge or Eton, when we have had the past two two of three of our yeah. last prime ministers did go to Eton. Maybe there's a relationship between this decomposition of the political sociology of the Tory party and the overemphasis in the past 10, 15 years of British politics on the very nostalgic 1950s going back yeah. to Sir Alec Douglas' home when we had mm -hmm. or Ted Heath when you had these Etonian prime ministers. In fairness to Theresa May, she couldn't have gone to Eton even if she wanted to. She don't want to slag her off too. Well, yeah, I mean, Johnson is uh, part of the reason he plays so well is because he he corresponds so closely to such a quintessential English archetype mm -hmm. uh, of 
um, I would say like the way that he conducts himself is less the kind of high aristocracy as a kind of good-natured, bumbling, uh, local country squire yeah. who, you know, might um, might engage in some kind of, like, uh, off-the-cuff pub talk bigotry and uh, grab the waitress's bum and stuff like that, but might also run the local cricket club and say hello to you in the supermarket and that kind of thing. Uh, if you come from like a rural part of the UK, like I do, then uh, you know mm-hmm. these figures are, are quite familiar. Um, but I mean, the more you kind of think through these things and follow one line of of uh, of logic, the more it comes into to contradiction with another one. So, um, yeah, your suggestion that this overemphasis could be a response to the the hollowing out of social bases an interesting one but the kind of um you know uh, petty bourgeois nationalism and these kind of cultural icons and the kind of emphasis on um uh imperial nostalgia and um national rebirth and uh kind of naive understanding of what britain is contrasts like the contrast between that and the actual people running the conservative party and the sections of capital that they are connected to could not be starker right Mm -hmm. like it is to lift a term like the most quote-unquote globalist um uh composition of like a ruling party that you could imagine in this sense and you're referencing uh, the new book by quince labodian globalists i haven't read it actually okay. but no I, well I, I use the term globalists like <laughs> reluctantly because it's often used by the by the alt-right okay. and so on. that's why i kind of say right. quote okay. unquote he's um no he knows <laughs> book is on, right it's, it's on the an alternate history of neoliberalism um from the perspective of hong kong and mm-hmm. neoliberal thought as in the age of or the age of post-colonialism in dialogue with the end of empire. Shall I put a link to it in the um, in the description? Sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, but that's just to say, like, the more that you follow one line, the more it comes into contradiction with something else, and it's very hard to to, to predict what's going to happen in this situation. Um, so, 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 yeah, the the ideology, the ideological presentation of the Johnson government, and the ideological presentation of uh, of Brexit is completely in contradiction with the material connections of the people pushing it through. And one of those things is going to have to give, and I suspect that the thing that will give will be this very imprecise notion of one nation conservatism, which has never had much content. And... Uh, has propagandistic value and would be a smart thing to do, but sceptical. What does that mean in practice, dropping of one nation? Uh, I think it, it, it means that these efforts to turn the Conservative Party into uh, the you know a so-called workers' party, as I think Theresa May um, called it, will 
run up against uh, just you know economic <laughs> difficulties given the uh, less than stable state of uh, of of global and British capitalism at the moment. Uh, that it will run up against difficulties of competence given the degree to which the state has been hollowed out of, of you know entire departments that used to manage this kind of mm. stuff uh, will run up against uh, difficulties of intellectual and ideological uh, reserves within the Conservative Party itself um, and just won't really go very far but I mean what you might see is some sort of uh, limited but I ideologically quite powerful um, increases in spending, uh, relaxation of some uh, welfare constraints and so on tied to uh, racialized notions of citizenship and assaults on uh, migrants and so on. So uh, from now on, uh, you know, immigrants will have to be here for five years before they uh, claim benefits, for example, um, in-work benefits included, I think. Uh, you'll have to pay in to the NHS before you can use the services of the NHS, and so on. So, you know, putting these things together, not that difficult to see how they will present it as well. We're making these people pay, or we're taking you know, the spending away from these people, and we're going to shift that spending to our new British uh, workers, right? Which in itself is something of a like media invention, but uh, I think that kind of operation uh, is something that's quite likely to happen and won't be a huge, but back to the wages of whiteness, right? It, won't yeah. be, it will not transform people's lives. It will yeah. not really address any of the, um, you know, any of the structural uh, issues in Britain, but it might not have to, particularly absent any kind of strong challenge. Just um, often in the last couple of months in conversations I've had with many people about the Tories, what they plan to do, where we see things headed from here, there's almost been a sort of collective amnesia and what always fails to pop up in the conversation is Brexit. <laughs> literally it's just disappeared from so much of the conversation about the Tories uh, I don't want us to focus on Brexit um, but neither does Boris Johnson no, the, yeah. word, the word has been banned yeah. it's done, it's over Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we have a deal Exactly. as he said the other day but uh, I don't know the, clearly there's something quite interesting about the, the contours of um, foreign policy of this Johnson government I mean not just in regard to the Brexit in the European Union but you know Johnson forever was tarnished by association with Trump one of the big things in the election campaign that the Labour Party pushed was the idea of Johnson selling the NHS to Donald Trump um, Theresa May had the same tarnishing um, yet on one of the key big issues um, of uh, the Tories have faced so far over Huawei um, the building of a 5G infrastructure in this country the Tories have distanced themselves from Trump. Um, I think they've opened up 30% uh, of the country's uh, uh, internet infrastructure to Huawei. Um, what, what's, what do you think that means in the, the sort yeah. of long-term imperial vision of Britain? If there is an imperial Goodness vision me. that well, Britain is um, capable of, more to the point. 
yeah the position is quite is quite interesting um i mean i i believe that huawei had already had already built quite a lot of infrastructure in britain okay. and that it would have been an expansive reversal to but nonetheless mm. yeah clearly went against trump there he was apparently uh, not very pleased about it um and it was also it was interesting as well in johnson's speech in the painted hall uh, where he laid out his brexit vision that he had, he attacked washington and china and the european union and basically everybody um as being <laughs> against free trade um but a trade negotiation is a trade negotiation and it's a question of power and leverage mm. and i'm not sure what power or leverage boris johnson has negotiating a trade deal with the united states mm. so okay um they published a you know 240 page um paper today laying out the terms under which they would negotiate a trade deal with the United States, which I have not read all of, but um, page one says, you know, the NHS is not for sale, the pricing of pharmaceuticals will not change, the uh, terms uh, under which the NHS provides service will not change, blah, blah, blah. Maybe, but then if that's not what is being offered in the trade deal to the United States, then what is being offered because you need to offer them something right in order to entice uh, American capital here in um, larger quantities than it than it already is um, where exactly they fall on that I, you know we'll see there, there there are two you know the negotiations with the EU apparently are ongoing um, but I I just don't. I don't really see what what leverage he, what leverage he has. It's you're going to have to dump regulations. You're going to have to open up, if not the NHS, some other huge part of the British economy to American capital. Otherwise, well, why, why would they sign a trade deal? Um, and you know, you can repeat that for for all all the different places in the world that he's talking about signing trade deals with. Um, not an expert on international trade, so I can't comment too much on that but what I would say is that I think that it means that politically internationally this government is going to be highly reactionary and support you know some of the worst governments in the world by all means at their disposal yeah you know uh, Modi, Bolsonaro. Modi, Bolsonaro, Trump etc etc yeah. right um, so one of the th one of the pieces of, le of leverage that Britain does have is its political clout on the UN Security Council, mm. uh, various international bodies, etc., etc. And so I can see uh, the Johnson government being a real force for reaction and a kind of solidifier of this uh, shift to the right internationally, uh, which is bad news for everybody. So yeah, where do we where do we go from here? Where what is the direction of of travel? It's seemingly, as you say, we're moving to more authoritarian government at home and and abroad. But what what implications does that have for say 
a Labour Party coming to terms with the leadership election? Uh, not many, it would seem. <laughs> if <you could> <laughs> uh, if you sort of follow what's going on, which I find almost impossible to do because it's mm-hmm. so dull. It's a morass. Yeah, um, it's both dull and miserable at the yeah. same time, which is quite yeah. a feat. But you know, the thing is, you know, if you, like I said before, this Johnson government is just shot through with so many contradictions. You look at the kind of thing that's happening in France, right? Do we think that this Johnson government could withstand that kind of social pressure? Like, I don't, personally, you know? Um, no other country in the world could sustain what they do yeah. in, in, in France. So, I mean, fair, fair. Different kind of. Uh, Political culture. Everything is relevant, is relative. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it, just before talking about, about the left and so on, you know, the last thing about Johnson and the Conservatives, something that I think makes it hard to analyse this kind of political formation in its process of emergence and coherence and so on, is that, is that they're clearly adopting, uh, to use a phrase like disruptive strategy. They're at war with the civil service, with the treasury, with the BBC, with the judiciary, uh, with, until recently, sections of their own political party, with the European Union, like, with everybody, basically. Uh, and with that kind of political strategy, this kind of like high stakes uh, grab, the signs of success for that strategy and the signs for the unra- of the unraveling of that strategy are essentially the same, right? So it's quite hard to read. And this was a fatal error that people made uh, prior to the election when uh, Johnson was getting defeated in Parliament, yeah. when he was getting defeated in court, and when you know he expelled the 21 uh, MPs from his own party and all of this kind of thing. All of these things that look like defeats, but aren't. Um, and that makes it hard to read to what degree the government is stable, to what degree this represents like an actually like coherent uh, entity, as somebody said before, and like therefore to what degree it would be susceptible to social pressure. Um, like I said, I, I'm finding it very, very hard to be in any way enthused about the Labour Party. Um, leadership election, although I will vote for Rebecca Long-Bailey and for Richard Bergen as clearly the best candidates politically, I would say. Um, but it seems like going into the election, I, I, I thought that probably going to lose until I deceived myself otherwise, because there's no other way of making yourself walk around uh, streets in random towns in the rain for you know weeks on end unless you actually think you can win probably probably a necessary delusion but hence, hence a lot of people's i've noticed lack of enthusiasm about playing back in for Rebecca yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah um so um uh where what was i saying um Sorry. no well no, no problem um but yeah i thought that the, di- the rough direction of the party would be would be relatively set the foreseeable future so I thought that the labor left would emerge with something and in one sense it has because you know um, well 
the positions taken in the leadership election now and the candidates running ostensibly are like far better than in, in, in 2015, right? But I suspect it, it doesn't mean that much. Um, and the left outside of the Labour Party as well is not in a, in a particularly good position to benefit. Uh, this is a low levels of social movements. Yeah. Although there has been a number of different strikes that have been emerging. Although the Tory plans to limit yeah. the bits of the strike even further. It is unprecedented, the UCU struggles in higher education. And the postal worker strikes and the, the rail strikes. Mm. And the climate, climate action yeah. protest by, by young people. Greta Thunberg speaking in Bristol. And damaging a green space, I think. Yeah. BBC ran, ran, a, ran an article, headlines, uh, Greta Thunberg protest damages green space because people were being hypocritical by wanting to save the environment but also having feet that connected with the earth and damaged some grass. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, clearly these things are, you know, the sources of, of hope that we should all uh, support and try to... Um, uh, Try, try to bring to the fore as much as possible. Um, but... Is, is there more to it than this, though? I mean, there's a problem, right, in these conversations. Um, we're in a dire state as the, yeah. the left, the social movements, trade unions. Um, there are flashpoints. We could sit here and read off a sort of email list of what's happening this week. Um all of it good things and all of it in terms of industrial action at least much better than the last 10 years probably like yeah. um but we're getting bogged down in the labor leadership election which like you i think is really important i want rebecca long bailey to win i want richard bergen to win um but even on those terms you look at the the policy positions you look at the way of interacting the media you look at the, any real commitment commitment towards building a a broader based socialist movement apart from Richard Bergen yeah. um, even Rebecca Long Bailey doesn't Rebecca Long Bailey doesn't really cut it mm. um, so isn't there a broader question here about one what sort of infrastructure the left wants to build let's not grapple with that conversation because that's not what this podcast conversation is about but two the Tories have repivoted they've repivoted quite sharply from the days of Cameronism mm -hmm. um, that means isn't a pivot required from the left be it in Labour and outside Labour um, that the left never quite made before Corbynism um, the key slogans of the left were end austerity um, spend money on public services not war like those sorts of things they were defensive uh, slogans in an area where we didn't have that much clout or that much resource or that much of a social base that changed people around McDonald really built uh, particularly with the 2019 manifesto quite an impressive um, transformative vision for how um, a sort of confrontational left social democratic politics could be waged um, where's that where is that vision now where how does that vision pivot itself against the sort of uh at least symbolically one nation tory party um 
predicated on that really brutal racist authoritarianism uh, good, good question. question. I mean, maybe we can open it up to the listeners. Of how we can do that. Um, no, I mean, clearly you're right. This is what we would all like to see. Um, part of me, though, does wonder, you know, as uninspiring as, as Keir Starmer is, as ideologically moribund as centrism is, uh, Johnson's got five years there are going to be five years full of problems and disruptions and, you know, maybe uh, economic and other catastrophes. You know, are we sure that a centrist candidate couldn't win in five years' time? I'm less sure than I, than I was. Um, and I find that quite depressing as well. <laughs> uh, their time might come again. Johnsonism would have to be a disaster. <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, it could well be a disaster. Well, I think the barometer test is still the United States because if yep. Bernie Sanders does mm. win the mm. nomination, that'll be the first time that the American and the British left are moving at divergent paths with Clinton, with Blair. Mm. It was a clear trajectory. Model, mold each other, model each other on um, their counterpart. Especially there on on Clinton. It's not just winning the nomination; though, it's winning the general, which is like a whole other beast, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, if he wins the nomination, he can't, they kind of are modelling the British mm-hmm. left because Jeremy Corbyn resoundingly won the won the primary. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I'm pessimistic. <laughs> <laughs> Unreasonably pessimistic. I think he's got mm-hmm. a much better chance than Corbyn is, but that's a conversation for another day. Mm. Yeah, well, I suppose it's just that the British le- left will be moving at divergent paths, whereas the British right mm-hmm. will be moving at a similar trajectory to mm. a Trumpian move, with even Boris Johnson t- turning into this reality TV show star with children, and you watch, you'll have another puff piece in the Telegraph, and the update on the Johnson family reality TV style leadership. Which will maybe turn into a similar uh, model to, to America, but yeah, there's uh, it's seemingly. I cannot the, wait. <laughs> God, just the image of a sort of keeping up with a Kardashian style exactly. Johnson docu series, jamming with the Johnsons. You know what it's going to be? <laughs> it's going to be like who's making Harry Simmons's dress? Uh, it's gonna be like, is yeah. it going to be a boy or girl? What are they going to name it? Yeah, who doesn't get invited? Oh God. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Are we, do we want to kind of wrap things up? Yeah, yeah. We're hitting. I, I suppose so. I mean, you know, I've been very pessimistic sounding, but obviously, you know, like you said, Matt, start the program. We should support the UCU strike. Um, any struggles that, that, that come up are our glimmers of hope. Um, the climate movement, etc., etc., and you know the Tories remain on the wrong side of a huge cultural divide in Britain. Uh, they continue to have almost no purchase amongst people under thirty-five. Or well, anyone in the city. Yeah. Yeah, I've never. The driving force of <laughs> British capitalism. <laughs> um, so things are not are not completely bleak. Um, 
and I guess good luck. What a note. <laughs> um, so yeah, after that uh, very grim ending of a conversation, maybe it's worth going on to some more grim <laughs> conversations and and re- have a look at what's been happening over the last uh, past couple of weeks. Um, does anyone have any particular? There's there been the Pretty Patel scandal um, in shock horror. Uh, Pretty Patel has caused a massive conflagration in the middle of government because she's a massive bully. Um, <laughs> any insight on that? Uh, I mean, maybe uh, this is part of them trying to uh, rebuild their social uh, connections by her. Um, acting in a way that we can all relate to uh, anybody who's had a kind of uh, overbearing uh, incompetent boss uh, knows what that what that feels like and she may be trying to sort of embody a kind of certain uh, reactionary social layer of middle management um, uh, in acting in this belligerent way um, but I mean this kind of more it's a more serious aspect of all this stuff, I suppose, is that they are trying to remake the state uh, to some degree mm. as fast as possible. Um, and part of me sort of suspects that they aren't making any real effort to negotiate anything with the European Union, and that's mm. just a kind of massive distraction away from the things that they are actually doing. Mm. Um, they, you know, they clearly want a more centralized, responsive, uh, streamlined. Uh, authoritarian state um but uh you know the blob the blob resists that's right scandal when she was having secret meetings with is it israeli yeah mm. 12 meetings i think she had when she yeah. was on holiday with uh netanyahu and other people which is a perfectly normal thing to do yeah um. I remember because they flew her back in didn't they and then everybody was like watching the flight tracking app of the plane she was on like waiting for her to get off and be sacked yeah. <laughs> or resign sorry <laughs> yeah I remember that day and I think the website crashed because everyone was like wait they're watching it <laughs> I was spending too much time on the internet <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. I mean, there's also been the coronavirus, which could be our villain of the week this week. Could be our villain yeah. of the week. Yeah. Um, I'm actually, on a side note, like doing some research on like preppers for this thing that this like personal script project that I'm writing. Mm. Um, and I'm on a load of Facebook groups for UK preppers, um, and some of the posts that you see on there are, like really fascinating because there's kind of there's a whole UK prepping community. There's what, one what's that, prepping? Oh, sorry. Uh, so prepping is like people who are preparing themselves for disasters. So oh, nuclear right. winters, um, you know, mass disease epidemics, pandemics, um, Brexit. <laughs> um, <laughs> there is a prepping. For, there is a prepping for Brexit uh, Facebook group, which of which I am a member. Um, you, that you are you see. better prepared than the civil service <laughs> <laughs> I almost certainly yes um, there's like yeah I mean it's kind of fascinating because there's like it's quite a lot of um, sort of middle class lower middle class work, working class people um, 
in like with families sort of with like kids and kids sort of age um and a lot of them are you know they're reliant on things like insulin um <laughs> they you know they're in situations where if society broke down like they would be completely fucked but there's also like an element of this kind of uh they're very very protective of their stashes and they won't they won't like reveal them to their neighbors and you get these sort mm. of fantasy posts that they put up about like what would you do if your your neighbor came over <laughs> after the coronavirus outbreak and was like do you have any spare food and then sort of doing this kind of masculine grandstanding about like oh my god uh, you know you didn't look after your family and i looked after mine and it's your own fault and like you're kind of the beta male in this situation anyway yeah really this is the death drive re- yeah really yeah. interesting insight into the sort of like death drive of the suburban male mm. um yeah so that's what i've been doing this week is looking at that an interesting side of the coronavirus outbreak and kind of also something that you you're you're more surprised to see in brits than in americans but probably shouldn't be yeah maybe boris johnson's going to go on a massive bunker building (laughs) the boris bunker Well, I mean, um, yeah, it might. This might be it. Mm. You know, uh, this it might might be all all over, um, which is exciting. This could be a great crisis. Yeah, he, he did have his Tory. I mean, we talked about this in the last episode, but he did have his Tory mate who was saying that maybe we should just put two bins together and house the whole. Oh, that's yeah. right. Maybe villain that could be He's the, the Boris bunker. Oh, I mean, yeah. he was the villain of the week. No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> He's not the villain yeah. of the week anymore. <laughs> yeah, that was, uh, that was kind of amazing. Um, I had something interesting to say about coronavirus. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> just some kind of uh, like weird, um, really purely ideological things that, that, that the government have done. Um, so, for example, like Sadiq Khan was not invited to, uh, to the, the COBRA meeting or how to deal with coronavirus, which you would think we, the mayor of London would be quite an important person to have there. Um, similar story was um, um, Mary Baird, mm. Mary Baird. Uh, was blocked from becoming a trustee of the British Museum because she uh, had some pro-EU tweets. Uh, and a bunch of stuff like this that you kind of wonder, like, why are they, you know, what's what's at stake here? Yeah. Um, uh, so, I don't know, I just thought that was kind of an, an interesting footnote of that suggests that they are prepared to go quite far uh, in terms of dysfunctionality for... Um, Games. They really want to prosecute the culture war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they do. Yeah. Um, so there was that that the United States of America uh, officially lost the war in Afghanistan. Mm. Yeah. Um, so we can add that to their list. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A lot achieved there. <laughs> um, a good week all round. Good week is what we're saying. Yeah. The. 
the thing. Arsenal got got knocked out. Oh, oh my right. God. Yellows. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You, I'm a Watford fan. This is when the great moving left this. show ends as a podcast right, series <laughs> due <laughs> to factional infighting <laughs> and expulsions. <laughs> 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 uh, what right, I would yeah. what I would uh, say is that there was a I think uh, some desire to talk about how great a film Parasite there was, was. Oh, I yeah seen it. I mean no, we're a little no spoilers. bit we're a little bit past the hype yeah oh, we are it was going to be full of spoilers but yeah. basically <laughs> what I'm going to say is if you haven't seen it watch it yeah and we'll absolutely. leave it at that I think. absolutely absolutely <laughs> yeah um, and also Snowpiercer I watched the other day another Bong Joon-ho uh, I need to watch that which is a little bit more beats you around the head with its class analysis but you okay. know I'm not necessarily not in favour of that sick yeah <laughs> strong <laughs> yeah. okay should we leave it there yeah um, just quick note to say we're on social media at I'll put it in the description because I can't remember off the top of my head <laughs> follow us there and um, our email address as well if please don't write in because I mean, I don't check the email address anyway. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, see you again next time. So long, guys. All right. Thank you very much. Oh,